Welcome to a special election episode of Today in Ohio, normally a news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. In each of our campaign season special episodes, though, we have a conversation with a candidate for statewide office. I'm Chris Quinn, and our chief political writer, Seth Richardson, leads the conversation. Today, we are speaking with John Cranley, Democratic candidate for Ohio governor. Welcome, John Cranley. Chris and Seth, it's great to be with you. All right, Seth, take it away. Yeah, John, thank you for being here. Going to get right into it. So, you've put out big plans for job creation, but you know most job creation doesn't necessarily come in one fell swoop. So, I I wanted to know how do you intend to spur job growth in the state when you know you're facing an adversarial legislature and maybe you're looking at um, just more steady job growth over time. Seth, thanks for the question, but. Uh, We are going to create 30,000 jobs a year that pay $60,000 a year to build the high-speed broadband that the entire state needs, uh, clean energy projects, fix roads and bridges, advanced manufacturing. And and if you want, I can walk you through each element of, of how we pay for it and how we can be certain that it's going to happen. Um... Uh, as you know, Seth, one of my big uh, agenda items is to legalize marijuana, tax it, and take the taxes and, and put it into the job growth. In, in addition to that, um, there's about $120 million that is in the budget right now for cash expansion of uh, broadband Wi-Fi, high-speed broadband Wi-Fi across the state. And then separately from that, Jobs Ohio generates about $350 million a year in profit which the governor effectively controls um, uh, through board appointments. Um, As was uh, verified by recent newspaper articles, it is very reasonable to assume that once Ohio has illegal marijuana and is taxed, that it can and should generate $350 million in new revenues annually. If you combine that with the 120 million in existing cash capital that can be converted to debt service, you're up to about 470 million. And then if you need any gap fillers, you've got access to um, the Jobs Ohio money that the governor uh, controls. So adding all those sources together, if you issue debt against it, uh, which is what my plan is, you can easily afford $8 billion over four years, so $2 billion a year for four years. And with those jobs, uh, and I'm happy to send you the, the background on this, it, it'll generate you know, somewhere in the range of about 20,000-plus jobs each year that pay 60000 in the areas of high-speed broadband uh, Wi-Fi expansion uh, in the uh, known costs and wages that are identified when the state buys and expands roads uh, and bridges. Now, now if I can um, jump in and, here for just a second, yeah, John, sure. when you talk about these, you know, these jobs to build broadband and fix, bri- you know, roads and yeah. bridges, yeah. you know, are those are those going to be permanent jobs? And if so, how? I mean, how do you keep those jobs sort of, you know, let's let's assume that you do get it done. How do you keep those jobs after that infrastructure is created? Well, I didn't say that they will be permanent jobs. I'm saying that for each of four years, we'll spend $2 billion building the infrastructure that the state needs. Um, I believe that the economy benefits from having high-speed broadband Wi-Fi throughout the state. 
it is essential to remote education, remote work. It's essential for small towns to access the major uh, state economy and national and international economy. It's also essential for farmers to get their tractors to work properly. And if we're going to stop the algae blooms in Lake Erie, we need tractors that can see into the soil. And so to reiterate, I'm going to spend $2 billion each year, and each year we're going to create uh, 30,000 jobs uh, to do this infrastructure work across the state. And um, we're also going to model, as part of that, uh, a successful program in Michigan to bring advanced manufacturing to Ohio, where they are subsidizing the creation of new advanced manufacturing jobs, which have a uh, median annual income of about 65000 And they're using about $10,000 uh, per job for permanent location to Michigan, either expansion or creation. And uh, Jobs Ohio is claiming, according to their own website, that they're spending about 27000 per job. And so I think we can be more efficient, more nimble, the way Michigan has been in getting advanced manufacturing. And so that creates huge savings as well. So the manufacturing jobs, which uh, under my plan would be between 10000 and 15000 a year, those would be permanent. But the infrastructure investments would be annual uh, allocations and in, in re-upping uh, 20,000 jobs in each of those years. Let me interject here. It, it's one thing to have these kinds of proposals to do big thinking on a statewide basis, but you're, you'd be introducing these proposals in a very Republican legislature that whenever it's had the chance to get some extra money has used it to cut taxes. So you'd be coming to the legislature to spend $2 billion a year on these things and this is the legislature that when they see $2 billion, they look at ways to reduce taxes. How, how does a Democratic governor in a state with such a heavy Republican legislature with a history of not spending big money get that done? A couple ways, uh, Chris. Um, first, as I've traveled the state, uh, the number one issue in small-town rural Ohio which are the most Republican areas of the state, uh, is high-speed broadband. And the largest piece of my jobs plan is high-speed broadband uh, Wi-Fi. Um, the governor writes the budget. You know as well as I do that 90% of the power of a budget is the first draft. And while changes are always made, um, you know th there is enormous power in the power of the pen of writing the budget. I'm confident, and, and I remember seeing an interview about six months ago with Jim Jordan on national TV saying the government needed to help expand high-speed broadband across the, the state. Obviously, there's federal money from the Biden infrastructure bill that can be helpful in this on this front as well, which may not some of which may not may supplement the need to have a new spending. But even without the federal funds, I believe we can get this through the budget because. The governor writes the budget and it has to be through compromise. But the compromise we're asking for here is something that's extremely popular with their constituents. Similarly, roads and bridges fixes are extremely popular with their constituents. And, of course, advanced manufacturing is extremely popular with their, uh, with their constituents. It's also the case that my advanced manufacturing piece of it, if necessary, can be funded exclusively through Jobs Ohio's $330 million annual profits. And the governor controls the board of Jobs Ohio. So there are some elements of this where I'll need negotiation with the legislature, some areas where I will not. 
regardless, uh, the, the issues themselves are extremely popular uh, in a bipartisan uh, fashion. Thanks to the Supreme Court, I also believe that we will have a non-veto-proof General Assembly, even though I think you're right that it's likely to be majority Republican. And that means that compromise is inevitable and necessary uh, for the government to function. But as I point out, the issues that I'm pushing for in, these, in this job plan are deeply popular, even in the most Republican parts of the state. Okay, thanks. Well, you know, speaking of the legislature and, uh, you know, sort of their uh, desires and what they've done over the past couple of years, I want to go back to something, you know, you, you tragically, your city experienced a mass shooting. Um, and since then, you know, gun laws in the state haven't gotten less restrictive. And, you know, in fact, uh, I'm sorry, they haven't gotten more restrictive and in fact have gotten less restrictive. And the general public has seemed to be okay with this. So I kind of want to know what sorts of realistic gun proposals do you plan on putting forth and how do you get them through a legislature that has shown that they would like to roll back gun restrictions pretty much every step of the way? Well, you're right, Seth, that we have had uh, mass shootings in Cincinnati at Fountain Square, Fifth Third Headquarters. We also see the public health epidemic of urban gun violence every day. And I think it's important to always point out because it, most people don't know this that the leading cause of gun violence in America is suicide by a significant uh, margin. And so gun violence, it, obviously the mass shootings get a big attention, as they should. And then, of course, people know about urban gun violence. But the leading cause of gun violence in America, by far, is suicide. Uh, and so this is, the gun violence crisis affects all people, not just people who live in inner cities, and not just people who are uh, you know, horribly unlikely to be in a mass shooting location. Um, and so this is something that affects all of us. And suicide is a mental health epidemic that we will also address with additional mental health uh, services throughout the state when Teresa Fetter and I are um, elected governor uh, and lieutenant governor. And let me just make a point uh, on your preface that uh, Mike DeWine uh, just signed the permitless carry. Um, I believe there's a stain on his soul for doing something that egregious and outrageous. He has... Um, sold out the police and fire uh, and first responders of this state. The police chiefs and the FOP came out against that bill and said it would lead to more cops being killed, more firefighters being killed, and more killing in general. Mike DeWine believes he knows better than the police and first responders how to keep our community safe. I believe working with the police and first responders is a better way to keep our community safe. And so, you know, Mike DeWine and too many Republicans uh, I've put out this, you know, calumny that the Democrats are soft on crime or, or anti-law enforcement. That's a bunch of bunk. He is anti-law enforcement. He is saying it's open season on the cops and firefighters in this state. And I look forward to debating the fact that I support our first responders in keeping us safe. And he thinks he knows better than cops and firefighters. And in fact, he's defunded cops and firefighters throughout the state by cutting local government fund. And now he's saying it's open season on the cops where anyone can have a gun with no training, which will create more escalated situations between citizens and cops. And that has led to tragedies all across this country and in my own city of Cincinnati. So he's full of it. Having said all that, you know, I don't control legislature, obviously. But what I do know is that 
I will continue to advocate for red flag laws and background checks and not to have the ability to just own a gun without any training with permitless carry. Whether or not I can succeed, I will be a moral voice uh, for those issues. But beyond that, I'm also going to do what I did as mayor of Cincinnati. Um, you know, I push for those policies and will continue to do so as governor. But I don't stop uh, when I get blocked. I, I find another way forward. As mayor of Cincinnati, uh, I'm proud to say that I, I started an effort nationally to create a gun buying consortium of other cities across America, like every city uh, that uses guns for their police. And we're creating a consumer revolution where we are banding together our resources as we get into the acquisition of, of, of guns for our police to sing, have a singular voice about the kinds of policies we expect gun companies to follow and research that they want. I, I mentioned the suicide crisis at the beginning on purpose. Um, the vast majority of suicides are committed by gun and the vast majority of urban gun violence are committed both of which are, f are committed by lost or stolen guns. You know, if I leave my phone uh, at a restaurant, it locks up and it becomes useless. But guns do not lock up right now because the NRA and the right-wing gun lobby has boycotted gun companies that invest in smart gun technology. So what my buying consortium did across the country is start to invest in research and development to create smart gun technology so that guns... Uh, will lock up when the rightful owner is not using them. Uh, you know, look, I'm a father. My, you know, I don't have a gun in the home, but if I did, the idea that my son could get the gun and, God forbid, harm himself or harm someone else is horrifying, as it is to any parent. And so getting the option of smart gun technology is something that, as governor, I can do through the purchase of guns for the Highway Patrol, National Guard, etc. Um, and so we will expand this gun buying consortium and make a difference, even if uh, the legislature remains beholden uh, to the NRA and the extreme gun lobby. You know, um, I think everybody's gone through a pretty rough two years, obviously, with the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, you know, 37,000 plus Ohioans died because of it. And I want to know, you know, what did you learn over that time period? And what do you think of um, all the events that transpired? Well, look, I mean, this has been a, a tragedy of epic proportions. Um, my best friend lost both of his parents to COVID. Um, like everybody else, it, it's affected family and friends in a very personal and tragic way. Um, and so I, I, think it, I think all of us are dealing with the sadness, and we haven't really fully processed what we've all been through over the last two years. And then there was the leadership challenges, the leadership challenge of running a major American city in COVID. You know, I remember in March of 2020, you know, reading the book, The Great Influenza uh, by Barry to really understand how pandemics unfold and what I should be doing. I took out an emergency loan in case, you know, in the beginning, we weren't sure if our, you know, I remember thinking, what if my water engineers died? and I can't provide clean water to the two million residents that depend on clean water in greater Cincinnati. You know, what if my cops and firefighters all go down, you know? And so we were taking out emergency loans. Uh, when the stay-at-home order, stay order came out, I, I, I made the emotional decision, which was caught on TV, 
in tears where I, I furloughed over 1,700 employees, including some of my friends, uh, to save money and also to stop the spread. Uh, and so I would say that all of us in this race that were in leadership positions, you know, have been weathered in a very significant manner by having to lead during this crisis. The other thing we learned is that America in general, in Ohio in particular, uh, was not prepared with PPEs, contact tracing, the infrastructure of public health. Cincinnati is, uh, has a proud tradition where we run our own health clinics, which is unique for a major American city, and we have a robust public health department. So we were better off than most cities, but not where we wanted to be in retrospect. And so what, what Teresa Fetter, my lieutenant governor, longest serving Democratic woman in the General Assembly, what she and I are going to do is make sure that public health is fully funded in Ohio, that we have a permanent infrastructure of contact tracing uh, and uh, cache supplies of PPEs uh, for the next pandemic. And I think we have to recognize that this is going to happen again and we can't be caught uh, unawares as we were uh, as a country and as a world uh, in this last, uh, in last pandemic. And then I also believe that on an ongoing basis um, that, that there were lots of victims of, of the pandemic that didn't get the attention that they deserve. Uh, students lost education um, and providing remedial educational opportunities I think is vital uh, to make sure that the poorest kids in Ohio, which were the kids who tended not to be in person in, in school, where most of uh, my own son, who was in private Catholic school, but also suburban schools, tended to be in person. And so I think we have a moral obligation to help um, students and families who lost out on educational learning uh, to catch up. I also think there's a mental health crisis that's following that we're already seeing the beginning evidence of uh, for young people who suffered uh, social anxiety, uh, loneliness, being stuck at home while their parents had to work, uh, things of that nature. And so I think expansion of mental health services to our youth is going to be a critical uh, thing going forward for the state of, state of, state of Ohio. Um, and so I think there's a lot of uh, pieces to pick up here as we move forward. You know, you've done a lot of work with the Innocence Project and um you know, if I, I, I kind of wanted to ask if, you know, do you think the state should end the death penalty? And I assume that I kind—I know your answer, um, but I want to know what you would do regarding executions if you were the governor. Well, because your listeners may not know, I, I, I think it's important to point out that um, I was the co-founder of the Ohio Innocence Project at the Cincinnati Law School. We started in 2002. It's just about 20 years old now. And for the first five years, I was the executive director and co-founder. And I worked on many of the cases personally. I've been to most prisons in Ohio. You know, a lot of Democrats and candidates talk about criminal justice reform. And I like to point out that, um, you know, for me, it's personal. Some of the people that we've freed, and we've been traveling around the state um, with some of our exonerees, um, these are my friends. And I've seen what happens when state power is abused and lives are ruined um, through lack of due process and fairness. And so, you know, the idea of an innocent person being executed, you know, is unthinkable. And in many of our cases, we not only got the innocent person out, but we also found the real killer in some of the cases. Um, but at the time, many of the people that were uh, convicted, everyone believed uh, in good faith that they were, in fact, guilty. Uh, and having personally experienced uh, innocent people that were facing the death penalty and were proven innocent, 
Uh, I do not believe that the, as a general matter that the government should be executing people. And I don't criticize Mike DeWine for not having executed anybody. Uh, and I think that's a prudent approach, um, um, you know, in light of the fact that I have been personally involved with people who were innocent and, uh, uh, and faced the death penalty and have been exonerated. So would you extend a moratorium if you were elected, I assume, on executing prisoners? Uh, yeah, I mean, yes. And I mean, I think that we would need a, um, I, I believe that this, some of this work is happening, but I think it would be good to have a, some sort of a joint commission with the legislature to talk about the long-term disposition of the death penalty in Ohio. And uh, I would certainly be in favor of that. Okay. Um, you know, one other thing that we've seen over these past couple of years is um, a lot of corruption, right? Um, and that's not just, you know, the first energy stuff. You can go back to you know, ECOT or, uh, you know, the payday lenders when the FBI was investigating all of that, there's, there's been this very, you know, it seems to be this pretty rampant culture of corruption in Columbus, you know, especially emanating from the state house. Uh, what would you do if you were elected to address that? Well, you're right. And, um, you know, they got away with ECOT and you get away with uh, crime, you commit more crimes. And so then they committed the biggest scandal, uh, in the history of the state which not only, um, you know, raised people's monthly energy bills to bail out a coal company in Indiana, but repealed renew renewable portfolio standards across the state. You know, as mayor, I built the largest solar farm ever built uh, by a city in America. The city of Cincinnati government is carbon neutral. 750 football fields of solar panels, 335,000 individual panels. Um, I will expand uh, inve state investment through energy procurement. As governor, I can do this on my own through annual energy purchases, clean energy investments and jobs throughout uh, the, the state of Ohio. Uh, but the corruption is rank, and so I'm the only one in this race, a Democrat or Republican, has pledged to fire the utility commissioners uh, as the moment I'm sworn in as governor. This is what Dick Celeste did. Uh, the last Democrat to get elected to two terms in Ohio, uh, he ran in 1982 on firing the utility commissioners, and I'm going to do the same. And in my opinion, they are not public utility commissioners. They're private utility commissioners that have been out to screw us and to take money out of our pockets and give it to the special interests. Now, Teresa and I have a unique new idea for Ohio, which has been tried in Alaska and North Dakota, Republican states, by the way, where the average person gets a dividend payment from oil and gas, respectively. Ohio has enough natural gas to provide a dividend to the average family of $500 per person, up to $75,000 in income. We'll means test it. But think about this contrast, Seth. The Republicans are corrupt, and in order to pay off the bribes, they charge us more monthly in energy bills to bail out their fat cat friends who fund their elections. Teresa and I are going to do the opposite. We're going to take money from their fat cat friends and give it to you and give it to the average family in Ohio that's struggling to pay their bills, struggling with inflation. Mike DeWine doesn't care about the middle class, working class, because he won't even temporarily reduce the gas tax that he imposed at a time of high gas prices. Teresa and I are going to put money back into the middle class, into people's pockets, struggling to pay their bills by temporarily reducing the gas tax until gas prices go down and providing a cash dividend annually of $500 from natural gas. And so not only will we fire the utility commissioners and replace them with public utility commissioners, but we also have an alternative. You know, I, I, 
you know, the corruption of the Republicans has led to kids not getting educated through ECOT. And it has led to people paying higher energy bills and becoming poorer and nickeled and dimed to pay off the corruption. Teresa and I are going to rebuild Ohio's middle class by reducing uh, gas prices in the short term, but providing a permanent uh, uh, dividend like they have in Alaska, North Dakota, to help people pay their bills. Uh, and so many Ohioans are struggling hand to mouth. All right, so you've been cruising along here, offering all sorts of great answers, the legacy of the, the Innocence Project. But you did start off by talking about the desperate need for bridges and roads. The gas tax increase, which wasn't all that big, was dedicated to very specific bridges and roads all through the state of Ohio because we know that they're, they're breaking apart. It sounds like a populist theme. I'm going to drop the price of gas by reducing the gas tax. When you're talking about an infinitesimal part of what the big increase in gas costs have been, is that, is that a legitimate way to go with public policy, to pull back on, on money that is dedicated to very much needed infrastructure for that populist sentiment that gas prices are too high? Well, a couple things. One, as I said, I think the reduction should be temporary until prices fall, number one. Number two is we have a unique opportunity at this moment with the Biden infrastructure plan to get a lot of infrastructure built. Third, my plans, which is $8 billion over four years, is, is paid for uh, on the infrastructure side by legalizing and taxing marijuana, which is a choice that people make uh, with their lives, like buying alcohol or something like that. Whereas, let's not forget that that the gas tax itself in Ohio is a regressive tax, that people who depend on getting to, to their work by car or bus must pay. And that's, that's part and parcel with the 30-year uh, Republican trickle-down economics of shifting income burden from income to sales, which goes from progressive taxation to regressive taxation. And, and, and it is simple math that those uh, who make less money have to pay a greater share of their income to things like this. So yes, I am on the side of giving uh, working class and lower income Ohioans a break in a case of high inflation like it is now. I don't believe that will come at the expense of vital infrastructure in Ohio for two reasons. One, because of the Biden infrastructure bill. Two, because my plan uh, on the infrastructure piece of it is paid for by taxing marijuana, which granted is a sales tax, but it is a choice uh, 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 that is not required uh, in order for someone to work. And so it is a luxury tax, if you will. And I think it's appropriate to use that kind of money uh, for infrastructure. Well, to get back on to, um, you know, the corruption that we've seen around, uh, you know, specifically in Columbus, you know, I've heard a lot, uh, you know, both you and your Democratic opponent talk about, you know, Republican corruption in the state. But, you know, Cincinnati isn't exactly immune to corruption and all of that. Right. We've seen several cases come from out of there. It's not unique to Cincinnati or anything like that, but there weren't necessarily those reforms during your time as mayor. And I, I would like to know, you know, why do you think you can reform Columbus if Cincinnati does still have similar problems to Columbus? Well, a couple things. One is that the biggest difference between Mike DeWine and me is that I very openly and publicly and repeatedly oppose the corrupt deals in Cincinnati. Mike DeWine you know, appointed Sam Randazzo, who created HB6, and signed it. 
the the council members in Cincinnati who were indicted by the FBI, um, and some have been convicted, some are still waiting for trial. And so in some cases, they've already admitted to the bribes and others are alleged. But in all cases, they were convicted of, of either taking personal money or campaign money in exchange for taking money from the public coffers and giving it to private interests. Sound familiar? That's what HB6 does, takes money from the public and gives it to First Energy. And so the, the fact pattern of HB6 and some of the council members that were indicted in Cincinnati are the same. The scale is much bigger at the state, but it's the same basic fact pattern. The difference is Mike DeWine signed it. I opposed it. And I mean that literally. In fact, if you read the complaint by the FBI against one of the council members, it talks extensively about how they were being bribed literally to get over my opposition to using taxpayer money to benefit a private interest. At the end of the day, no matter what system you have, you're going to have the ability of individual corruption. And I stood strong and firm against the corruption. The second issue is that we made massive changes. In fact, I, I approved, uh, I appointed personally uh, the former head of the Ohio Ethics Commission, Anne-Marie Tracy, who was also a Hamilton County judge. But she was chairwoman of the Ohio Ethics Commission. And she ushered in a series of reforms of more disclosure and transparency and periods of non-fundraising during development deals and things of, the, of that nature. And so we did make uh, major changes. But fundamentally, we need a governor who isn't going to aid and abet the corruption the way Mike DeWine has. We need a governor like I was as mayor that publicly opposes um, the rating of the tax dollar to bail out private interests the way HB6 did. Um, and I have a very clear record on that. And in fact, if you read the indictments, uh, they're, they're being bribed to overcome my opposition. All right. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us. Wait, oh, oh, okay. oh, hold on, hold on. Before you go, before you go, I wanted to ask. You've spent a lot of time in this conversation, which has been a delightful conversation. I yes. hope they all go this well. Oh, thank uh, you. Talking about Mike DeWine. But... The Mike DeWine part of the battle would be in November if you succeed in the primary part of the battle, which is against Nan Whaley. And you haven't discussed the differences between you and Nan Whaley at all. Your your focus has been running against Mike DeWine. Could you say a couple of words about why you think you're the better candidate than Nan Whaley? Absolutely. Look, over the last 30 years under the corrupt, crony capitalism, one-party rule, the average Ohioan went from making more than the average American to making less than the average American. Columbus is growing and Cincinnati is growing, but every other part of the state is in decline, both in terms of population loss and economic wages relative to the national economy. Cincinnati is the only comeback story in the state, the only major city that was in decline, like it was my, the majority of my life up until 2010. And then after my time as mayor, for the first time in the census, we grew again. The city proper grew twice as fast as the state of Ohio. We reduced poverty one and a half times faster than the state of Ohio. We have more black owned businesses that make $500,000 a year or more than any city in Ohio. And we have the highest on a per capita basis in the country. We were the, one of the only major cities in America last year where shootings were down and not up from 2020. And so fundamentally, we are the only comeback story in the state of Ohio. 
and Ohio needs a comeback. And if we deserve, if we deserve a comeback, we deserve a governor that's led a comeback. My leadership and my investment in clean energy and a $15 living wage and preschool and public transit, uh, my work on racial justice and reforming police community reforms is putting our values as Democrats into practice, not just talking about them, but putting them into practice. And it turns out when we put our values into practice, uh, the pie gets bigger, wages go up, the middle class is bigger, poverty is down. You know, um, my argument against Mike DeWine works against virtually everyone in the state, I guess maybe with the exception of leadership out of Columbus, which is that my people are doing better. You know, the Republicans love to quote Ronald Reagan, are you better off today than you were when the other guy took over? Well, my people are better off. Virtually everywhere else in the state, the people are worse off. And I believe that for Democrats to win in November, we have to convince people that we can meaningfully improve the quality of their community, their lives, their economic prospects, and their future. I have actually done that in Cincinnati, and I am unique in this race uh, to be able to make those claims. And I think that's the kind of result-oriented leadership that the state of Ohio needs. Okay. Well, thank you, John Cranley. Thank you, Seth Richardson. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Today in Ohio is a weekday morning podcast. It's normally a discussion of the news. 